Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. I just came back from watching Avatar, The Way of Water. And this is going to be a different kind of review. I can say, as a classic movie review, that uh, the movie, the visuals, the sound, everything's expertly done. The story, better than I thought, you know. I thought it would be more generic than it was, but I didn't have high expectations for a very interesting story. I mostly came for the spectacle. There's also plenty to say about the representation of Indigenous people in the film, because, of course, this film is a thin allegory for the colonization of the Americas, of this continent, America or Turtle Island. And the people in the film are basically meant to be the indigenous people of this continent. And the actual indigenous people of this continent have a thing or two to say about the representation. I'll leave it to them to say that. Uh, I would encourage you to look up Avatar 2 Indigenous, to Google those words, and see what comes up, and learn about some films that Indigenous people are making themselves to show themselves as they are, without all the stereotypes and cliches, many of which do find their way into the film. There's also a very problematic uh, white savior complex, where you know the guy from the outside, the guy from the colonizer's side, is the one who saves the Indigenous people. So these are all legitimate concerns about the film. I'm not going to go in that direction myself. I don't want to approach whether the film is bad or good or critique it in that way, although I think that's fully legitimate. What I want to ask is why the film is, why it is, why this film is made through the lens of cultural anthropology on my own culture, what this says about the times we're in, about relationship with the earth, with the indigenous people of the earth, and with our own indigenous ancestry. Because none of us actually come from other planets. (laughs) We're all from here, and we are all indigenous to the earth. But many of us are not living that way. And for many of us, the colonization came so many generations ago that it's been totally normalized. So to give some context, I'm in Canada now. 
which is the land I was born in, but I lived a good deal of time in India, being immersed in the culture there. And part of the reason, retrospectively, that I did that was because of some great lackings in my own culture. Put in a simple way, we don't get around the fire each night to sing and dance. We don't have rites of passage to speak of. Creation story is kind of like science. It's a creation story, but it's kind of anemic. And you got Christianity's creation story, but it's, it's really mixed with imperialism and guilt, original sin and things like that. So really growing up in a culture that very affluent, materially, financially, but also really uh, with a great deal of poverty culturally. Also some good things culturally. None of these things black and white. And I guess that's the nature of films as they tend to simplify things, or at least blockbuster Hollywood films do. So coming back to Canada from India, where there is singing together and there are festivals where people come and dance in the street and there's ceremony and all the families come and join in this way. To be part of that and coming back here, it feels a bit cold. People in their homes, people have been afraid of each other. The, the weave of the culture feels threadbare and I felt quite lonely and isolated without community. So for me, in the state that I'm in now, thinking about community and thinking about this lack, this is the lens I'm approaching the film with, and this cultural anthropology about quote-unquote white people or people of European descent. Francis Waller, talks about different gates of grief, and the fourth gate of grief is that which we expected but did not receive. Which is to say, each of us expected when we were born that there would be dozens of faces happy to receive us. Perhaps there would be those who were singing songs about us. There would be ceremonies around our birth. And for many of us, that didn't happen. We were born into nuclear families or single-parent families, into foster care, into different situations. But it's rare that somebody's really born into an intact village. And just to put it in perspective, this whole project of civilization and empire and, you know, dividing ourselves into nuclear families as well, is really recent. You know, in the whole history of humanity, if you say, okay, we've been humans for about 200,000 years, 200,000. So, you know, we usually talk about history as about 5,000 years, 10,000 years. Most of our history is living in relatively small groups with each other, trading, intermarrying with other groups, or marriage, or whatever the equivalent was, our entertainment, storytelling, which is culturally meaningful as well, weaves us together, 
very integrated with the quote-unquote natural world, or which is to say the other beings that we share the planet with. And this is true, whatever your ancestry is, whichever part of the world you may come from. And depending on what your ancestry is and the whole history, you may have been separated from that. Your ancestors may have been separated from that a long time ago or relatively recently. So this is to give some context to the discussion about cultural appropriation or about white people wanting to be indigenous. It brings up these questions. What is it to be a white person? What is it to be indigenous? And my understanding is, of course, indigenous means to be of a place. And those who we call indigenous are of particular places, often fighting to defend those places from the rape and pillage of converting those places into cash for people from other lands or in the film from another planet. And what is it to be white? Well, of course, nobody is white. That's You'd have to be very pale indeed to be white. But we say, we say this, white usually refers to people of European ancestry. But what does that really mean? When does that When did that white come about? My friend Tad Hargrave talks about how whiteness is not an identity, but a covering over of identity, especially for those of us from other lands who've settled here in North America, Turtle Island. There's a kind of melting pot that goes on. You know, for myself pretty much only see two, three generations back. You know, my parents, my grandparents, and maybe a little bit before that. And uh, then it gets really, really hazy. So this sense of being of a people, this sense of being the latest in a long line of people, people who are of a place, you didn't really grow up with that sense. And there's a history to that. And there's a loss of identity of that Irish, Italian, and other ancestries. So it's easy to miss that being a white person is not an identity, but a forgetting of an identity. I was speaking with a Cowitzen man, indigenous to the West Coast here, at a protest last summer, and he was talking about the missing and murdered indigenous women. And then he said, and what about your women? There's many that are murdered and missing as well. What about your people? And it struck me then that I didn't think of them as being my people. I didn't think that I had a people. And it seemed to be white is to not have a people that this is the hard cost of this privilege. To be white is to have this privilege, but to be uprooted from ancestry and from land, and to be looking for it in different ways, because this is, you know, 
what it means to be human or of, of the earth or of different places on the earth. Pohaniks, a teacher from the Hanuksiala peoples, pointed out that you may not see yourself as being of your people and you have that choice, but know that this is how we see you. So coming back to the film, you know, with the white people trying to be indigenous with the white man leaving his own people, leaving the people of his birth, this cultureless, greed-obsessed, colonizing people, leaving them and attempting to become native of another people. You know, it's problematic, but it's also understandable. You know, looking for some earth identity and for people who've lost their own culture, perhaps it's understandable to look to other cultures for hints of how to get it back. So, of course, there can be appropriation, which means, you know, copying and pasting, taking, or especially using for financial gain. But perhaps there can also be inspiration, like, oh, that's how they do it. You know, that's how they do rites of passage. That's how they do sending people off after they've died. Okay, okay, so there's more to it. How how might we do it? Which is not an easy question to answer. You know, it might involve a lot of prayer and also going back in time and seeing, you know, how one's ancestors did it, getting a sense of these things. In the film, they call the colonizers the sky people, which is interesting as well. You know, Sophie Strand and others, they have some good things to say about sky gods compared to earth gods, that the worship of sky gods, you know, those who are above and beyond the elements and the beings of the earth, that worshiping them exclusively can lead a people to be detached in an unhealthy way from what goes on here. You know, anyway, going to heaven, anyway, this earth you know, just created, it'll be destroyed by God. I don't need to be in good relation with the beings here. Whereas cultures whose sense of the holy is woven throughout the trees and the bears and the rivers will tend to be in better relation with them. So the sky people, they come, they come from another planet, they come to take and they come to bring back to this other planet which of course is like Europeans coming over. It's a fur trade, there's logging, there's extracting oil, and it's it's all, you know, to send money elsewhere. And Robin Wall Kimmer, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, she was asked in an interview by Bjork, as it turns out, about whether a person can become indigenous to a place. And she thought about it and she said, I don't think so. Because indigenous means of that place. But then she borrowed a term from botany and said a person can become naturalized. Or a plant can become naturalized, which is where the plant's not from that place originally, but it learns to really be of that place and integrate in that place. So for those coming over from other lands, be here, 
you know, we're all indigenous to the earth, but I couldn't say that my ancestors are indigenous to this place. Wouldn't be correct. But if I do things right, I might become naturalized, which would include being in good relations with the indigenous people of this place, as well as the indigenous trees, whales, dolphins, rivers, bays, and all the other beings of this place. You know, not to just take and send off, but have this sense that, oh, it matters what I do here. It matters the legacy that I leave and what I contribute to because I'm also of this place in a way. So although it's filtered through Hollywood and all of this stuff, we could see our main character, Jake Sully, we could see him trying to reclaim his indigenous self. You know, he's militant, he's ignorant, but he may be trying awkwardly, as perhaps the filmmakers are trying, as perhaps the whole overculture or settler culture may be trying to reclaim that and doing it through ways of capitalism, which means like taking from other cultures and selling them and all that stuff. And yet perhaps underneath all that dysfunction, there's some, some cry for help, some cry for, you know, I too want to be of the earth. I too am of the earth. Prayer in my pocket. May I always carry a prayer in my pocket, a song in my heart, and a memory of kindness as my armor. May I saunter the landscapes of spirit, barefoot and blessed, a warrior begging through every valley and peak. May I seek the shamans of spirit, the prophets of prophecy. May the sacred flame kindle what we cannot keep. In desperation I seek, but stumble often along the path only spirit has trodden. Having forgotten the art of praise, our spirit starves in the dark and lonesome night. The land awaits the rekindling of ceremony to once again celebrate the gifts we now simply take. Still, in earnest sincerity, a spark begs for tending. A temple within the secret of secrets seizes my soul in wondrous love for a mere moment that I may carry in my pocket into eternity. Another point is that war changes the besieged. At the beginning of the film, the families living happily together and they're they're living their life. They're hunting and singing and making beads and these kinds of things. And then the aggressors come, the bad guys come. And while our heroes were spread throughout the land, now they've got hidden camps. And where they were living in peace, now they need to raid weapon supplies and become like their enemy. That's the thing, is 
when a people are under siege, it's difficult not to become like the enemy in order to fight the enemy. And this happened throughout Europe as imperialism spread, as conquest spread, so did the tools of conquest, so did the mentality of conquest. You know, if your neighbor is becoming more and more aggressive, you might just get a weapon yourself. You might just learn to fight yourself. You might just get into that mentality so that when they come and they attack, you'll be ready, you can defend. It's not that defending is a bad thing, but the culture changes and becomes more warlike in order to survive. So the culture loses something in order to survive. It becomes less like itself in some ways. And so as this violence spreads, so does the capacity for violence. You know, in the film, the whales, they have a code of never killing. Because even though it might seem like a good idea, it always begets more killing. So they have a code. And, you know, a lot of killing in the film, the bad guys. But you kind of get it. Like, yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But then to not defend oneself or one's people, one's loved ones, might mean to be wiped out. It's a high cost to pay. But then becoming warlike to fight is also a very high cost to pay. And the invaders are also changed, which perhaps we're seeing over time with empire and colonization on this Turtle Island, that those who've come, perhaps gradually being changed by the life ways, by the thoughts, by the wisdom, the teachings, the stories of the people who were here before and who are here. We also see in this film the difference between a warrior and a soldier. As I understand it, one of the differences between a warrior and a soldier is that a warrior gives allegiance to their own people, whereas a soldier's allegiance is to whoever hires them. And if the one doing the hiring has a lot of money, they can have a lot of soldiers, which makes it difficult for groups of people who are fighting for themselves, for their own defense, to compete because they may not be able to, you know, hire all these extra guns. There's also a point about what a warrior goes through to become a warrior compared to what a soldier goes through. For a warrior, there may be an initiation into adulthood, usually manhood. For a soldier, there's also kind of an initiation, but it's a sort of pseudo-initiation. There'll be Certainly hardship, physical hardship, you know, breaking down of their character. For young men, it can be good to learn their place, to learn that they're not such hot shit, that they're meant to serve, not that the world revolves around them. So like in marine training, for example, and in the raising of a boy in traditional cultures, there's some correspondence. And yet, what is the allegiance to? So for the warrior, their allegiance is to land, to people, 
the beings of the land. Whereas for a soldier, allegiance may be to a government, you know, that their their will may not always be ethical. So you see a kind of co-opting of the warrior nature for causes that are not ethical. And something that strikes me personally the hardest in this film is that it is all focused around family, defending the family. So our main character, Jake Sully, he's a father now of quite a few kids, and he's got to defend them against this big threat that's coming in from the invaders. And they leave the tribe of his wife, who's a Navi native to the planet there. They leave her tribe, and they go to another place, just the family. And this defending the family could be a good thing. You know, at least he's not just living for himself. But it shows a fracturing of the tribe. Because for most of our history, the family unit, the nuclear family, wasn't our main way of being together. You know, your uncle might be more important in your life than your father, and your father might be more important in your cousin's life than her father. There is a collective raising of the kids, not that everybody was so segregated. And speaking of the colonized mind and all of this, one of the ways it shows up the most is in, rather than a group being of each other, it's just families. And the man and the woman need a lot from each other because they don't have the whole village. And the children need a lot from the parents because they don't have a whole village. You know, just like consumerism, we're expected to each have our own cars, each have our own phones, each have our own computers and washing machines and TVs and all the rest. In relationships, we're expected to be self-sufficient within the home, more or less. And the amount of mixing and interdependence that exists in other cultures might be hard to imagine, you know, from the perspective of modern culture in Canada, for example. And this feels like a huge tragedy. In the film, you see these tribes also living together and people intermingling in these ways. And although it's kind of cheesy and, you know, appropriation in Hollywood and stuff like that, when the first Avatar movie came out, there were Avatar movie watcher support groups for people who had such a hard time coming back into the world after the film. Like they wanted to live there. You know, they come out of there, this beautiful world and all, you know, all these tribes and people and all of that. People living together in this other way and coming back, oh yeah, my cubicle job. I got like my one friend and, <laughs> you know, come back alone. Like I left the theater today. I, it's kind of rainy, dark, got in a bus by myself, you know. So there's a yearning for that. There's a yearning for living in that way. And the reason for that is that's mostly how we lived. 
I mean, I'm not saying like just in, like in the movie, but it's hinting at something. It's hinting at a way that we lived and that people also still do live. And in the course of the film, the woman, Jake Sully's wife, she also has to leave her people. And just the family goes to another tribe. And then they stay there. You know, what about her relations with her people? You know, she's a person of a tribe, not just of a family. So it would be hard for her to live in that place. For Jake Sully, having a family is a big deal because he was just living for himself before. So that's about it for my thoughts about the movie. <laughs> you know, not much about the plot or <laughs> any of that in my quote-unquote review. But this is really what it brought up in me. So I wonder, what do we do now? You know, we're not living in tribes for the most part. Living in cities. A lot of us are living in cities. We all have our own ancestry from different places. Ancestors living in villages. Uh, we're from all these different backgrounds. And we, we live very close to each other in cities. In kind of semi-anonymity. Very close to each other. And yet often not interacting. Like on the bus on the way back. It's people around. But we kind of pretending we're not in the same space with each other in a way. We're not like making eye contact or anything like that. We're living in this kind of artificial anonymity because there's so many people around us that we just can't get to know them all. It's a funny way to live. It's an unusual way to live. You know, we normalized it now, but it's actually a highly strange arrangement historically. But one thing that comes to me is, you know, gone through some grief about not being in an intact culture and about how rare it is and how this, you know, bad infestation of colonialism spread, you know, throughout Europe and, and Asia and how, how it spread to this continent and it's so prevalent and things are getting more and more fragmented. But in the midst of that grief, I come to an appreciation of what social fabric there is, what people are doing, you know, the webs people are weaving, social workers and people in their businesses, in their daily lives, helping neighbors. It's something. And in my own life, the family and friends that I do have might not be a full village, but it's not nothing either. And so I, I feel an appreciation for that, that I haven't felt as much before. There are fragments of community, and the world is magical. The film is so much about oceans, and we also have oceans, and they're under great strain now. But they're there. The whales are there. Dolphins are there. We live in a magical world and we can commune with other beings in a way that is not considered possible by most authorized mainstream educational sources. The world is still alive. 
Our ancestors had an intimate relationship with the source of their sustenance. Our ancestors had an intimate relationship with the substance of their sustenance. So they cared deeply for, so they cared deeply for, so they cared deeply for the land. And really, I didn't think the whole invasion of the people from the other planet was really necessary in the film. Necessary in order for it to become a Hollywood blockbuster, perhaps. But for me, I would have been pretty happy watching this character, Kiri, just connect to the creatures of the world, seeing the boys grow up. I liked the mythic relationship between the younger boy and a whale. I thought that was really cool. I would have been pretty happy just seeing them grow up and explore the world. I didn't really need to have all these battles with guns and the showdowns and all that kind of stuff. It felt like it was obligatory and not really that interesting. But I did really like the parts of the film with all the creatures and the connection with the creatures and things. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part, I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, May you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.